and welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Okay, today we have a returning guest, Dr. Barry Lasser, a criminologist from John Jay College. For over three and a half decades, Barry Lasser was a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, CUNY, where he was a member of the master's and doctoral faculties. He taught courses on criminal justice, criminal law and procedure, state constitutional law, capital punishment, and the history of crime. Lasser has written and published six books on law and crime and approximately 70 scholarly articles research reports, magazine articles, book reviews, and op-eds. His scholarly articles have been published in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, the Journal of Criminal Justice, Judicature, is that how I say that, Barry? Yes. Judicature, and major law reviews. His editorials have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Daily Beast, National Review, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, City Journal, and the New York Post, as well as the New York Daily News. Uh, a widely read interview with David Frum appeared in The Atlantic, June 19th, 2016. His recent article on Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor who won't prosecute, was the cover story of the February 7th, 2022 issue of the National Review. And Dr. Latzer actually joined me for a discussion on the podcast around that same time. Professor Latzer received advanced degrees from the University of Massachusetts, a PhD in 1977, and Fordham University School of Law and his bachelor's was from Brooklyn College. He served as an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn from 1985 to 86, and as counsel to indigent criminal defendants in Manhattan, 86 to 87. Barry Latzer and his wife live in New Jersey. They have one daughter who lives in Portland, Oregon, and when Professor Latzer isn't writing, he can be seen hiking or at the opera, especially the ones with murders. (laughs) Do I have that right, Barry? You do. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks my, for coming back on. My publicity agent loved the line about especially the ones with operas. <laughs> with murders, right. With, with, with murders, I said opera, right. I meant <laughs> right. with murders. Yeah, she thought that was very good. So, yes, I'm delighted to be back with you, Lucas. This was fun the last time. It's going to be even more fun this time. I think so. So I have a question for you before we get into the specifics of your book. And your book yes. is uh, is excellent. Um, very. Thank you. Why is this book special to you? I got the sense from reading the myth of overpunishment. That's the title of this book. That this was particularly important to you. I got the sense that you were trying to leave the world with something to leave America with a legacy, a legacy of perhaps a re, uh, doing your best to help us return to sanity through empiricism. Uh, and I'm wanting to hear something about something from you as to why this book, why you needed to write this. Cause I really got the sense through the book. You needed to write this. I think Lucas, whenever we have reformers, they tend to exaggerate 
the activities or institutions they're trying to change. And that's what's happened here with this decarceration movement, as I call it, this attempt to reduce the numbers of people who are incarcerated in the United States. They've totally exaggerated the the ills of the the incarceration system. And I really got fired up about that. It just galls me to see policy proposals based on on realities based on falsehoods and especially of course in my own field of interest criminal justice when i saw the misrepresentations there was no crime rise in the late 1960s i mean excuse me who's mugging all those people my god Uh, we have this massive system of incarceration without regard to the desert of the people who were being punished. I mean, this is not reality. So that's what fired me up. That's what motivated me to write this book. And I also wanted to tell the history of punishment in the United States in part to show that that history is really a contrast, a sharp contrast to what we have now. It was much harsher, much more cruel than the system we have now. And I think all of this needs to be said, even if you want to do reform, or maybe especially if you want to do reform, Lucas, because if you want to do reform, the reform has to be based on realities. You you can't reform based on your imagination as to what the system is like. You have to be realistic, never mind the politically realistic part, but realistic about the system itself, what it is you're trying to change. So that was a long-winded answer, but that's my answer. It's a good answer. I'm stunned that um, the wing of academia, criminology, would be captured by the push for non-reality, like other um, non-scientific sort of soft fields. That's a criminology is a field that has such massive implications for social policy, for public administration around that which affects an individual most drastically, and that's crime. How can your colleagues deny historical facts? Like we had a massive crime wave from 1960 to 1991. Um, I think you had uh, mentioned that. And there are, and it was the largest crime wave in American history, right? Probably. I mean, the data in the earlier 19th century and certainly in the 18th century are are really not dependable. So that's why I hesitate saying this was the biggest, but certainly among the biggest. How can your colleagues say that they don't exist, that the crime wave didn't exist? Criminology, it's it's not quite as you say. Criminology is still pretty hard science and is also Mm -hmm. driven by data. So I, I would not say that it isn't data driven and it isn't still a, a, a fairly hard science for, for social science. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of not being interested in historical uh, issues when it comes to crime. They're just not interested in it. They're interested in the current day and they don't look back at the historical issues. And when criminologists look at the current day, It's usually with data in mind. In other words, everything is driven 
by whether you have data. So this makes the analysis very narrow. They might look at one year's development and in a particular city or with a particular uh, methodology or with a, a, a particular uh, policy. So it's a very narrow focus. And it's this narrowness that's the real problem. Um, there are, I guess, more, it's more a, a problem among historians that they are the ones who either deny or are unfamiliar with the big crime wave from the late 60s. And frankly, I think a lot of this, Lucas, is attributable to their age. I think these are young scholars who never lived through it. Well, you're still a young fellow. I don't know how far back you can recall, but I'm an I'm a geezer and, and I remember very well what the crime situation was like in the 70s and the 80s. And I was living in New York for some of that time, New York City, and it was pretty rough. So maybe, you know, the excuse is they're too young to pers have personally experienced it. But let's face it. The research is shoddy, too. When you say things, you know, like, well, there was no real crime wave. It was an artifact of uh, either the politics of the time or the journalism of the time, exaggerating, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of journalism. Uh, exaggerated fears, which were, were tr trumped up by the politicians, uh, that's the kind of explanation that they give. It's so totally divorced from the realities. I mean, we have enormous numbers of people who were murdered. Let's just take the murders. I mean, the, the numbers are just staggering. From 1970 to 1995, this is the cover of an older book, actually. Over 540,000 Americans were murdered. Over a half a million Americans were murdered. Now, we know this is a fact because these data are not derived from the criminal justice system. They're based on, on uh, medical examiners or doctors' uh, cause of death filings. Mm -hmm. and, and so we know these are accurate data. Well, I mean, who killed all these 540,000 people? These are homicides. These are not just, you know, ordinary deaths. These are homicides. Who killed them all? I mean, this was a massive crime wave. And, and so I don't know what the other explanation is. Driven by ideology, shoddy uh, work on, on the history, too young to remember the realities. I don't know what else the explanation could be. One of the thrusts of your book is that... Um, you push back against the claim that the incarceration system built the crime wave or built the illusion of crime. And we'll, we'll get there, but Barry, in your own words, can you, can you tell the audience what you hope people will uh, take from reading your book, what they will absorb in terms of knowledge? I want people to understand what the system is really like. I want people to understand that when they hear the exaggerations of the decarceration movement, it raises eyebrows with them, that they realize that it's not quite as bad as the critics say. 
And that's my, that's my main uh, goal, I would say, in publishing this book. I want this book to be the alternative perspective so that people will read this and say, well, what about this situation? What about the fact that over 55% of everyone in prison has done a violent crime? What's your answer to that? Uh, and I want people to be able to pick out the data if they're you know, data-oriented, or at least to understand the arguments, the issues, with a different perspective in mind. Is this a perfect criminal justice system? It's never been perfect, never will be perfect. Should we have some serious reforms? Yes, I argue for some serious reforms. But again, the reforms have to be based on realities. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to inject into this discussion, into this debate, a different narrative, a contra narrative, a reality narrative. So let's pursue a reality narrative through some questions. We often hear that innocent men are um, exonerated and released after decades behind bars. How can you say that the United States does not overpunish? That's all I ever hear. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. Uh, yes, there are miscarriages of justice. It's awful. When I hear these cases, I mean, I'm very disturbed, too. Who wouldn't be? You'd have to have a heart of stone, see some poor guy locked up for years, maybe even decades, for something he may not have done. But these cases are pretty rare, Lucas. These are not typical cases. One may have the impression they're typical because, of course, they make the headlines, they're shown on 60 Minutes on television, and those are the cases they focus on because, of course, it's also fascinating in a, in a kind of a morbid way, right, in a kind of ghoulish way. And it fascinates people. People are disturbed by it. So the journalists, of course, cover this. But that's not the typical case. The typical cases are people who are not only guilty of the crimes for which they're incarcerated, but they've committed multiple, multiple crimes many times. We know this. We've studied this. We have data on this. We know that within nine years after release from prison, over uh, 70% of the people released are arrested again for another crime. We know this. We know that 400,000 people who are on probation or parole have to be reincarcerated because of additional crimes. So these are facts. These are the realities. Most people in there are in there for serious crimes. They're guilty. They're responsible for what they've done. And not only most, but the overwhelming majority. It's only a handful of cases that involve a miscarriage. They're awful, but they're rare. 
Let me read a quote to you from former President Barack Obama. The United States is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Think about that. End quote. Yeah, it may be true. It may be true. But unless we also look at crime, we don't know if this is a terrible thing or not, do we? We really don't know. As a matter of fact, if you just take the over 18 population of the United States, 0.6% of the United States population is imprisoned. But now let's flip that coin. How many serious violent crimes are punished in the United States? Here's a shocking figure for you. The answer is excluding murder, which is punished more than all the other crimes. Excluding murder, only about 6% of serious violent crimes are punished with imprisonment. 6%. That means 94% of serious violent crimes are not punished with imprisonment. So do we overpunish? Well, maybe not. I think you'd have to take into account not only the American prison population size, but the American crime committing size, if that's a legitimate phrase. The numbers of people who commit crimes have to be factored into this. So, you know, President Obama is presenting only part of the story in that comment. He would have, should have included and needs to include the number of offenses committed where there is no punishment. And that's quite a few offenses. And I again, the day to they learn that from, sorry, Barry, I was struck to learn that no, from no, your book. Perhaps you were about to go there was that we actually under punish in proportion to the amount of crimes that are committed. Um, I recall from your book, most crimes are never prosecuted or even taken up by the police. I think people would be surprised to learn that it's the vast majority of crimes. And in terms of who is serving time and for how long, we're serving, uh, giving prison sentences that are far more lenient than any time in American history. Uh, well, not any time in American history, but then um, in comparison to uh, recent history. Is that true? Um, the sentences are, are longer, especially for, for murder and rape. They went up in the, in the 1980s. Now they're coming down again, and it's pretty much consistent with what it had been in the 1950s mm -hmm. and 60s. Um, uh, the numbers of people who are incarcerated has, has gone up, however. Uh, but still, as you said, and I said, compared with the numbers of people who commit crimes, serious crimes, I mean, not minor offenses for which you wouldn't imprison anyway, but serious crimes, uh, the ratio is still pretty low. Many people commit crimes and get, frankly, just get away with it. They're, or, or they're not punished. They're given lighter uh, sentences, like probation, which essentially is you go home and don't do any more crime. With, with that admonishment, you get to go home. You get to go free. So uh, let's take an example here. Let's take the the higher percentages. Let's not go by what people reported in the in the uh, survey of victims. Let's go by what crimes were reported to the police. Okay, 
let's take robbery, which is certainly was one of the most common and disturbing crimes of the period from the late 60s to the early 1990s. So robberies, and this is for 2018, Here's, here, here are the numbers, reported to the police around 268,000 robberies that year. Of the 268,000, a little over 30,000 went to prison. So why is that number so low? The answer is, one, the police never apprehended the robbers. Two, those who were apprehended didn't necessarily get prison sentences. The result is, of the 268,000, only 11%, 30,300 and something, only 11% were imprisoned. So this is in part a police problem. Robbery is a very difficult crime to solve. On my television, crimes can be extremely difficult to solve. Why? Because robbery is a stranger crime. The people don't usually know the one who attacked them. The descriptions are usually not that helpful to the police. Uh, you know, to say it was a tall guy with a mustache is not very helpful in a big city, right? Uh, so the police don't apprehend many robbers. And that's one of the big problems. It's a very hard crime to, to solve. But then when they solve it, the punishments are often non-incarcerative. A first-time robber may only get probation, so there's no prison time served. So the end result is 11% of reported robberies do not uh, result, excuse me, result in imprisonment, and the rest don't. Eighty-nine percent don't. Just due to the, the due to the nature of the crime and and the, the logistics in terms of prosecuting it, I, I understand that we have much That's more correct. radical claims coming from politicians on the left these days regarding deincarceration movements. Uh, I believe yes. you uh, quoted AOC. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yes. who likened the American incarceration system or the criminal justice system to apartheid. And yes. you have this funny way of um, stating very obvious facts right after these kinds of outlandish statements. And this was a really funny part of your book. Uh, I don't think you meant it to be, but it was when you said that the very high rates of recidivism uh, prove that her point is false. Right. Because if we have 5% of the American population committing 50, around 50% of the violent crimes in this country, which is a fact, yes. um, then obviously, and their recidivism rates are so high, that means we're catching and releasing. In other words, we're attempting to reintegrate them into society. The complete opposite yes. of what she is positing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I took her to mean to be making a racial statement. I took, you know, the apartheid to be a racial statement, but maybe not. Maybe, it, I, I don't know, maybe she just means poor people or, mm. or lower income people. I, I, I don't know what she, exactly she means. I don't think she, she, she said, but either way, it's wrong. <laughs> either way, her evaluation, her analysis is, is, just, is just incorrect because the people who are put into prison, each one of them has had a trial or plea hearing 
the prosecutors have had to present evidence of their guilt. Uh, either they've pled guilty or, or a jury or judge found them to be uh, guilty. Each case, in other words, has been carefully vetted and they have appeals. They're entitled to appeals of, of their conviction and of their sentence as mm-hmm. well. Plus, we know that they've committed crimes before they were arrested. We have records of that. And we know that they continue to commit crimes when they're released. So the chances of this being the wrong guy, the chances of this being apartheid in the sense that they're locked up because they're poor or they're locked up because they're black or they're locked up for some other spurious reason, the chances of that are really entirely remote and extremely unlikely. So she's mistaken. Yes, there are a disproportionate number of poor people and of black people in prisons. This has to do with their crime, with the kinds of crimes they commit and the numbers of crimes they commit. Now, there are many people who will be watching, especially from the left side of the political spectrum, who would say African-Americans make up 13% roughly of the population and yet are represented at 38% of the prison population. So isn't this evidence of blatant racial disparity or, or racism somewhere in the criminal justice system? Disparity, yes, but disparity doesn't necessarily mean bias. And we need to keep that distinction in mind. It's it's a disparate number because 38% of the prison population is obviously almost three times the population in, in, you know, in general of, of African Americans. We have data that's almost unimpeachable that shows that African-American crime rates, and I'm talking about serious crimes, the kinds of crimes that get you into prison, those crime rates are very, very high. And this is what accounts for the high uh, imprisonment rate of African-Americans. Let me give an example of the kind of really unimpeachable data we have. The Centers for Disease Control, the same people that brought you uh, flu vaccines and <laughs> COVID vaccines. <laughs> the Centers for Disease Control collect data on homicide mortality. Now, homicide mortality means somebody died and they died because some other person put them to death, either by shooting them, stabbing them, hitting them with some blunt object or some other m- means of, of killing them. Now, where does the CDC get the data from? The answer is when somebody dies, whether it's in that circumstance or some other circumstance, a doctor has to fill out a death certificate. This is required by law all through the United States and has been for, you know, 150 years. When the doctor fills out those death certificates, they put down the cause of death. If the cause of death was the, the action of another human being, that's considered a homicide. It may not be a crime but it's a homicide. Someone else caused the death. It may not be a crime because, for instance, it could be an accident. The gun misfired, it went off. I didn't intend to to kill him, but the bullet struck him and he died. So that may not be a crime, but it's a homicide because another human being caused that death. So now all of these death certificates are sort of collated, pulled together, and reported by the county in which the death occurred 
to the federal government and the CDC aggregates or pulls together all of these death certificates from each county and then they differentiate by race, by gender, by age, by all sorts of, of you know, descriptive factors who died and who died because of homicide. So you could see the criminal justice system really has no input into this process. It's not like they were asking the police departments how many died and why, or the courts even. This is independent data. Now, Barry, many people would say that the prison population has uh, over-incarcerated, especially communities of color along the Mm -hmm. uh, drug crime area. Yeah. What do you say about that? Yeah. Well, if I may, may I just finish one more point on the the CDC data on on homicide? So let me give you the data for 2020. That just came out. If you look then at non-Hispanic whites, white people who are not of Hispanic background, and we see how many of those non-Hispanic whites died due to a homicide, a killing by another human being, we end up with 3.1 per 100,000. That's the figure. Now, let's compare that 2020 data again to the numbers of non-Hispanic blacks who died due to homicide. And the number is 31.2 per 100,000. 3.1 versus 31.2. In other words, a differential of 10 times. How is it that 10 times more African-Americans per 100,000 were killed, murdered, died through homicide? Why is that? And by the way, this, this differential more or less has been valid since at least the 1920s and probably earlier, but we don't have such good data on the earlier period. Why is that? How is that? Now, people who don't know will say, well, the cops are shooting. <laughs> or, they'll, or, or they'll say white bigots are shooting them. Neither is true. Neither is true. Unfortunately, sad to say, most people who do murders, murders that murder their own kind, so to speak. So, so it's a the very, overwhelming it is reasonably overwhelming explained because most people live murders. in their communities, right? Of course, it's it's a matter of proximity. You live next to people who are like you. So the overwhelming majority of these homicides are committed by other African Americans, and that is the reality. Many of these are criminal homicides; that is, they're murders. And the people who do them go to prison. And there was, it is. Unimpeachable data. I'm baffled by opposition to uh, uh, data like that. And in particular, we have a situation where obviously, I mean, obviously, in higher density areas, in fact, you're going to have higher crime rates and higher violent crime rates. And so you see American cities and cities really anywhere are more violent than their suburban or country comparisons. And since in America, for a variety of uh, racially relevant reasons that could be discussed, but would be a little bit of a uh, divergence here, we have a large proportion of the African-American community residing in cities. And my point in bringing this up is that there's a very Mm -hmm. understandable link between population density and the commission of crimes. I don't see why that's so objectable to state as a fact. It's 
it's totally understandable. It would be the same yeah. or at least a very similar outcome, if not exact, if, if any racial group lived in higher density, they would be committing more crimes. You know, there are special circumstances yeah. that lead uh, the African-American community to have, uh, you know, a number of things going against them in terms of historical yeah. development. Um, but the population density uh, argument seems to be unobjectionable. And I don't know why we can't simply say what the facts are. You know, uh, so okay. I want to say that. And go ahead. Two responses. First of all, interestingly enough, I found in the course of my historical crime research that in the 19th century, that was not the case. In the 19th century, the rural areas had higher murder rates, higher crime rates hmm. than the uh, urban areas. Why? Because in the rural South, for instance, you had what they called an honor culture, a great sensitivity to insults and slights. And this led to a lot of interpersonal violence. Remember the, the stories of duels? You, you yeah. probably remember, of course, the Alexander Hamilton Aaron Bird duel. That wasn't the only right. one, by the way. And although dueling died out in the North, it continued in the South because of this so-called honor culture. So the result was you actually had higher uh, uh, violent rates in the South than you had in the North, even though the South was less urban. It's in the 20th century that the North became more violent, and that in part was due to the migration of white Southerners and African Americans from the South who carried this honor culture, this subculture of violence with them to the Northern cities. So it's really interesting. In the first half of the 20th century, New York City's homicide rate was below the average homicide rate for the United States, the biggest city in the country, right? So it's very interesting, but you're absolutely right to say that population density nowadays is a big factor in uh, a crime rates. No question about it. In part, because when people are living on top of one another, you have more quarrels in part because there are lots of guns available, handguns available, and those, of course, facilitate uh, assaults and murders. Um, and in part, and this is the controversial issue, because some groups are more violent than other groups. They engage in more violent crime than other groups. And African-Americans, unfortunately, have a, a rather long history of engaging in violent of crimes against mainly other African-Americans. In other words, the black on black crime uh, issue is a real issue. Are there any objections to that position that you just took um, that you think have some credibility? Any contrary hypotheses? Yeah, some people say that view that there is a subculture of violence among African-Americans is, if not an out-and-out -out racist view, it gives aid and comfort to racists. It gives support to racists. Um, and my answer is, it's not a racist view because it's not based on anything inherent. It's not based on anything biological. It's not inherited. It's not passed on in any biological sense. Other groups have had this subculture of violence and the groups changed 
as they moved to the middle class. And I firmly believe that in the post-civil rights era, this will happen with African-Americans as well. It may take another generation or two, but it happened with uh, the Irish, who in the 19th century engaged in high levels of, of interpersonal violence. It happened with the Italians, who in the early 20th century did the same. It happened with Hispanic migrants to the United States from the mid 20th century on, well, before the mid 20th century on. So who thinks about uh, uh, Irish violent crime now? People would think you came from the moon if you start talking about Irish violent crime now. But if you look back in the 19th century, you will see a very different picture. So that's the big criticism. Big criticism is uh, if you lats or talk about uh, subcultural violence among African-Americans, you're, uh, as, as one former friend of mine, he, he, he unfriended me. You're a borderline racist, he said. Have you gotten that kind of reaction from your academic colleagues? Well, you know, the good thing, Lucas, is I don't have to answer to them anymore. I'm retired and I could, I could speak without fear of, of reprisals. Would I have been uh, welcomed uh, in academic circles? Uh, I don't know. I rather doubt it. Um, I, I don't think so. Most of my academic writings were in, you know, on legal issues. So that, that was different. But once I switched over to crime history and now to the history of punishment, um, my works have not gotten a lot of tension from the academic community uh, at all, which is a source of frustration to me. But as I said, cr criminologists focus on the here and now, short term, uh, measurable data, quantitative mm -hmm. Uh, uh, quantitative uh, uh, data, and uh, they tend not to look at the broad sweep of things. But I do. I have the luxury of being able to do that, and I do it. Your books certainly take a sweeping view. I noticed how careful and detailed you were in part one of your book to be very descriptive of the horrors of the many of the horrors of the history of the American criminal justice system. And yeah. you point out uh, racial disparities in particular, the conditions for the inmates. I mean, it turned my stomach to read some parts of your book. You were yeah. very, you gave uh, really due process, shall we say, to mm -hmm. the history of, yeah. The, yeah. of the savage conditions under which yeah. we kept uh, largely African-Americans in the Southern uh, plantation, convict yes. lease systems and uh, justice systems. And so I thought that you were incredibly descriptive there. And I think you wanted the reader to understand you're not ignoring anything to do with history and context. In fact, you understand with great detail what certain groups have been through. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I mean, just read the chapter on convict lease. It's just so atrocious, right? Horrible. They took all these young black guys and many of them were just teenagers, really, and, and convicted them of, it's mainly misdemeanors, but, you know, they were sort of bogus charges. I, I won't go into the details. 
And then they put him to work in the most brutal conditions because the prisons had been destroyed in the Civil War down south. So they leased them out to businesses. Often the businesses were engaged in really uh, uh, like mining, brutally mm. difficult and, and, and really harsh conditions. And they forced them to work in these conditions. So, I mean, it was uh, like I said, it was like a, a black gulag. It was a, a, almost like a, mm. a forced slavery type system. The only advantage they had was if they managed to survive the year or so, they were released, whereas slaves were for life. Uh, you know, even under a slave system, the slave owners try to keep you alive and healthy enough to work. They didn't they they wanted you to work. They didn't want you to to be unable to work. That was the value of the slave. Right. But these companies that lease prisoners had contracts for a certain number of workers who, who were convicted of crimes. They didn't really care if a guy was maimed or died. They just got a replacement for him. I mean, this was really an atrocious, atrocious system. And no, I didn't, uh, I didn't whitewash it one bit. So, um, given the atrocities, how could, how could we have a healthy uh, criminal justice system now if that's the origin point? Right. And, and I guess some on the left would make that argument too, Lucas. They would say, well, all we have now, look at the 38% African-American population in prison. All we have now is just an evolution of that awful, openly racist system. So now it's a hidden racist system. But that isn't true. The system changed. The system did evolve. The system focused on the facts of each case, the facts of each crime. And that's the source for prisoners nowadays, not trumped up charges of, of phony misdemeanors designed to just extract work from people. In fact, there's no work for prisoners. That's one of the problems of prisons nowadays, this, this total boredom, because there is no work for them, which is a whole other story that I discussed briefly in the book. So my answer is, it may look like we've gone, you know, from an openly racist to a covertly racist criminal justice system, but that just is not true. That isn't true. Now, in terms of um, the, the cause of that reformation, we might call it, was that due to the leniency movement in the 1920s? I think that's part of it, yes. I think you have two things. You you have this uh, a movement to be more lenient with prisoners in order to reform them. There was an effort to, to rehabilitate and, and reform on the thinking, not illogical, that if they get out and they're reformed, they won't come back and will reduce the number of incarcerated people. And that would be true if we could reform them. The other big factor was the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement made for a much fairer and less racist criminal justice system. No question about that, as it did with so many other institutions in, in the United States. Long overdue, shouldn't have had to wait 100 years after, you know, slavery ended to do that. But we can't change history. That, that, that's what it is. So 
I think those were the two big factors. Now, in terms of um, the improvements uh, in in the the post civil rights era, we'll call it, and the way that policing happens, there are some objections to uh, on the left to the way that policing transpires. Right. So I want to return briefly to the disproportionate amount of racial groups in prison and so forth. The mm -hmm. assumption seems to be from those on the left that if the police were to randomly distribute their uh, patrolling efforts across different geographic regions and certainly uh, all populations, that you'd have an equal amount of criminal uh, cases in in every area. That seems to be the objection on the left as to, uh, you know, if you that the police are over patrolling African American mm -hmm. communities, and if they were patrolling other communities with equal mm -hmm. representation, that they would elicit a proportionate amount of crime in those areas. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another um, vantage point from which the left will say. The disproportionate yes. amount of people in, in prison from certain racial groups is caused by a sort of yes. subterranean um, uh, biased system. What do you say? Yes. Well, we've already seen with the CDC data on homicides that it's certainly not true for, for murders. And it's not true for many vi other violent crimes uh, as well. Uh, if the police distributed or deployed uh, police officers based on population and not on crime, there would be an awful lot of complaints because as any human being who lives in a city knows, there are some places in the cities that are more dangerous to be in than other places. Everybody knows this. Never mind the, you know, race or ethnicity of the, of these locations. There are some places where you simply don't want to walk around, maybe not in the daytime, but certainly not at nighttime. So it wouldn't make sense for the police to deploy equally based on population. So what would make sense? What would make sense is to deploy based on reported crimes. So they'll rely in part on 911 calls, calls for service involving allegations that there are that there are crimes and and that makes sense that's the police have to do it that way otherwise there would be enormous complaints that they're not doing their jobs properly so the notion that police could deploy based on population makes utterly no sense no one would no one would want a police department to really do that and if they did do that they would fire the chief it would be a rather strange circumstance if you take, say, Oceana, West Virginia, or Virginia. I can't remember which of the Virginias it's in. It's an extremely dangerous city, and it's almost mm -hmm. exclusively white, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm deracializing the issue when yes. I say that if you take a very dangerous white city, no yes. one would say the police should be uh, randomly patrolling the suburbs <laughs> surrounding the city as much as they should yeah. the actual crime spots. Um, Okay, so that's covered. Now, Barry, why why step into the racial line 
of the criminal justice debate? Why, why step into that direction? How is it that you're hoping your, your writing and speaking about that particular issue will benefit the country? Well, whenever I do it, I have misgivings. I must tell you the truth, Lucas. Um, I think it's unavoidable. I'm afraid it is unavoidable because of the high crime rates, the high crime rates among African-Americans. And, and again, let's not forget, when we look at the victims, we see they're overwhelmingly African-Americans as well. By the way, there was a poll just done. Uh, the, the University of Michigan NORC uh, outfit just did a poll and they asked Americans, are you fearful of gun crime? And one, I believe one in four Americans said yes. And among African-Americans, it was well over half, well over 50%. Why is that? Because for good reasons, because they're being victimized by gun crime. So it's unreality to me to ignore this racial situation, to ignore black on black crime, sensitive as it is, difficult as it is, uncomfortable as it makes us. That's the reality. And what we have to do, I'm afraid, is we have to address this issue. And at the same time, we have to reject the racist views, the views that, well, this is inherent. They are that way. They will never change and so forth. I don't believe that. I don't approve of that kind of talk. And I don't think that will be our reality, as I say, in a generation or two from now, but it's our reality now. Now, what about the argument that economic disparities contribute yes. to the, the disparate crime rates? Yes, they do. Um, why is that? I was very interested in that issue. It was just a study done on New York City and the poverty rate, I think it was 2020, but it was a recent time period. And what they found, Lucas, was, believe it or not, the Chinese and Chinese-American population of New York had higher poverty rates than the African-American population. So then I said, hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? And then I looked at the arrest rates for each population because NYPD publishes data on arrest rates by ethnicity and, and, and other factors. Well, of course, as one would expect, the African-American arrest rates were very high and the Chinese or Chinese-American arrest rates were very low. And I said, gee, here's a case where you have a lot of poverty in one group and yet lower, assuming arrests reflect actual commission of crimes, lower crime rates among mm. that same group. So how do you explain that? And that led me off onto the cultural argument again. So I've seen this repeatedly. This was, you know, to me, this wasn't new news. It was just another striking example of what I already knew. Philadelphia, another example. Should I take the time to tell you the Philadelphia one? Sure. Okay. Philadelphia. The New York Times just did a big article on uh, the terrible shootings that go on in Philadelphia. It's awful. Carnage in the streets. 
So it turns out the New York Times didn't discuss very much the situation among African-Americans versus other groups. No surprise there, because that would have violated, I'm sure, the journalistic codes of the New York Times. But I, invite, I, I examined the question. And what did I find? I found that Hispanic Philadelphians had higher poverty rates than African-American Philadelphians. But Hispanic Philadelphians were not nearly arrested at the same rates for serious crimes that African-American Philadelphians were. So once again, just as the case of the Chinese in New York, once again, you have a kind of a mismatch, you know, uh, an adversity mismatch where one group is poorer than another, but does less crime. So my final point on this, unless you prompt me with another one, my final point on this, um, why is it that middle class members of these same groups don't do a lot of violent crime? How is that among African-Americans, middle class African-Americans don't do a lot of violent crime? Chinese African, uh, Chinese middle-class people don't, Hispanic middle-class people don't. Why is that? And my answer to that is middle-class people have very powerful incentives to refrain from violence and violent crime. They can go to courts to resolve interpersonal quarrels. And if they do crime, they'll probably bollocks it up. They'll probably lose the reputation they have in the community, lose their job, lose their marriages. It'll probably be ruinous for them. Whereas these young, footloose, unmarried, unattached males don't have any of these constraints. What do they care? They're off to have a good time, get drugs, get girls, have fun. And if it involves using violence against their, quote, enemies, that's good. Maybe you can beat him to the punch. So the poor people will engage in more violent crime. The middle class people will engage in less. It's a matter of disincentives to the middle class. They have less to lose. And um, we could go into a direction of wondering about the um, ideas of redistributing wealth and its, you know, uh, tendril into crime theories. But that may be a, yes. bit of a, a divergence. Now, I want to bring up something here. Um, it's not from your book, but in terms of police bias and the uh, war on drugs and so forth, you had mentioned Wilson and I believe um, uh, who was the other Nixon cabinet member, Moynihan. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you, you, men yeah. you mentioned how they were misrepresented. Now, yes. I do want to throw you a bit of a curveball here, Barry, mm -hmm. because there is another man, John... Ehrlichson, Ehrlichman, who was the mm. assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Richard Nixon. Yes. And in terms of understanding, uh, you know, racist roots of certain policymakers in America, I couldn't turn away from, from this particular quote. Uh, now, this is from the Netflix uh, series called 13th. Uh, I, I believe it is from, actually. Uh, and mm -hmm. the quote is, you want to know what this war on drugs was really about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war 
or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the war on drugs? Of course we did. Now that's a quote from John er Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman. And, um, yeah, I remember that. I remember when it came out, it was, uh, right. of course, stunning. Um, so doesn't that quote from the assistant to the president on domestic affairs uh, during the time of uh, the Nixon uh, administration speak to uh, a subcurrent uh, and under an undergirding racist element to the criminal justice system? Mm. Yes, it does. If you think he was accurately portraying uh, administration's views and administration policy, different members of the administration would probably have different uh, ideas. That wasn't Moynihan's position, by the way. Certainly was not. But uh, I, I don't know if that was the view of anybody else, including Nixon uh, himself. As for the drug issue, uh, it has to be remembered that drugs uh, have been illegal under the federal legislation way back to, to 1914. And heroin was illegal well before Nixon ever became president. And of course, the bigger problem was not heroin. The bigger problem was cocaine, which was a problem in the late 80s. And that was long after Nixon was gone, may not even have been alive anymore. So I tend to dismiss, you know, the Ehrlichman remark. But of course, the left takes it as a, a representative of, of reality. And, and they say, aha, uh -huh, here's the proof the Nixon administration was really out to get the black people and the, the war on drugs was just a pretext to lock up black people. Um, I don't think so. And, and here's my final point on this, uh, uh, Lucas. The biggest complaints about insufficient enforcement when we had the cocaine uh, issue in the late 80s. The biggest complaints came from the black community, the leaders of the black community, including the black congressional caucus. They complained bitterly to the Reagan administration, you're not doing enough to enforce the anti-drug laws. The cocaine business is tearing our communities apart. It's destroying our young people. And you need to do more, they said, not less, more to imprison these drug dealers and to get them off our streets. That was the reality in the late 80s and, and early 90s. So I would, you know, marshal that comment and bring it up and match it with the Ehrlichman comment about the earlier period when cocaine, by the way, wasn't even on the scene and the crime associated with it wasn't, wasn't even present. Now, you make some data-driven points in this direction in your book as well. Uh, I was surprised to learn that if you removed uh, drug-related offenses, you're only removing 15% from the total population who's incarcerated. It's, but most people out there imagine that uh, drug-related incarceration is something like 85%. It's a total flipping of the reality. And, you know, Barry, that's, that's why I wanted to have you on again 
is that your book forces us to make contact with reality in ways that are uncomfortable, in ways that we'd rather not. But from my own perspective here, we have to start really examining the facts of the world outside our preferences, our preferred views. And we the reason, again, that I thought your book and your general corpus of work is so important is that we have a large proportion of Americans right now who hold positions that simply don't make contact with reality. And it is causing massive division, massive, and I worry, long-standing, long-term division uh, between groups and within groups, both racial, economic, and political. And it's, it's sad to see. As an example, if you survey, as recent polls have been done, people on the left side of the spectrum, if they identify as somewhat uh, left-wing, they will... Uh, tend to report that the police are likely killing around one to 5,000, believe one to 5,000 unarmed black men per year. And if the person identifies as heavily left-wing, they believe that the police are killing upwards of 10,000, okay? This is simply not making contact with reality. And you could no. see, by the way, the number is more like actually 10 or 12. 10 or 12 single digits in a country this large. Uh, now you could see why if you held that kind of position that your ability to engage in dialogue and understand how to move forward with a distinctive contact with reality facts on the ground would be massively impaired and how our communities would be more divided than ever with a sort yeah. of tribal ferocity. That's what I'm worried about. That's already yes. been taking place. And so your work, as contentious as many believe it might be, is speaking to where the data are taking us and what we might do in a pragmatic, realistic way. And I just I thank you for coming on and having the courage that you do. Well, I don't know how much courage it takes. As I said, I'm retired. They can't do anything to me anymore. They can ignore my work. I hope they don't. I, I really hope that that people will listen and try to deal with the issue uh, and the issues that, that I, I'm presenting. And as you say, uh, if you're going to want to reform the system, improve the system, you really need to deal with the realities of, of the system. And so that's what I was, what is trying to present here. And I, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share this information with you and your audience. Anytime, Barry. Thanks very much and take good care. You too. Thanks, Lucas.